Section 3 of Expository Thoughts on the Gospel of St. John, Volume 2, by J. C. Ryle. Chapter 7, verses 25 to 36. Blindness of unbelieving Jews, God's overruling hand over his enemies, miserable end of unbelievers. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Marianne. John, chapter 7, verses 25 to 36. Then said some of them of Jerusalem, Is not this he of whom they seek to kill? But lo, he speaketh boldly, and they say nothing unto him. Do the rulers know indeed that this is the very Christ? Howbeit we know this man whence he is, but when Christ cometh, no man knoweth whence he is. Then cried Jesus in the temple, as he taught, saying, Ye both know me, and ye know whence I am, and I am not come of myself, but he that sent me is true whom ye know not. But I know him, for I am from him, and he hath sent me. Then they sought to take him, but no man laid hands on him, because his hour was not yet come. And many of the people believed on him, and said, When Christ cometh, will he do more miracles than these, which this man hath done? The Pharisees heard that the people murmured such things concerning him, and the Pharisees and the chief priests sent officers to take him. Then Jesus said unto them, Yet a little while I am with you, and then I go unto him that sent me. Ye shall seek me, and shall not find me, and where I am, thither ye cannot come. Then said the Jews among themselves, Whither will he go, that we shall not find him? Will he go unto the dispersed among the Gentiles, and teach the Gentiles? What manner of saying is this, that he said, Ye shall seek me, and shall not find me? and where I am, thither ye cannot come. We see in these verses the obstinate blindness of the unbelieving Jews. We find them defending their denial of our Lord's Messiahship by saying, We know this man, whence he is, but when Christ cometh, no man knoweth whence he is. And yet in both these assertions they were wrong. They were wrong in saying that they knew whence our Lord came. They meant no doubt to say that he was born at Nazareth, and belonged to Nazareth, and was therefore a Galilean. Yet the fact was that our Lord was born at Bethlehem, that he belonged legally to the tribe of Judah, and that his mother and Joseph were of the house and lineage of David. It is incredible to suppose that the Jews could not have found this out if they had honestly searched and inquired. It is notorious that pedigrees, genealogies, and family histories were most carefully kept by the Jewish nation. Their ignorance was without excuse. They were wrong again in saying that no man was to know whence Christ came. There was a well-known prophecy, with which their whole nation was familiar, that Christ was to come out of the town of Bethlehem. Micah chapter 5 verse 2, Matthew chapter 2 verse 5, John chapter 7 verse 42. It is absurd to suppose that they had forgotten this prophecy, but apparently they found it inconvenient to remember it on this occasion. Men's memories are often sadly dependent on their wills. The Apostle Peter, in a certain place, speaks of some as willingly ignorant, Second Peter chapter 3, verse 5. He had good reason to use the expression. It is a sore spiritual disease, and one most painfully common among men. There are thousands in the present day just as blind in their way as the Jews. They shut their eyes against the plainest facts and doctrines of Christianity. They pretend to say that they do not understand and cannot therefore believe the things that we press on their attention as needful to salvation. But, alas, 
In nineteen cases out of twenty, it is a willful ignorance. They do not believe what they do not like to believe. They will neither read, nor listen, nor search, nor think, nor inquire, honestly after the truth. Can anyone wonder if such persons are ignorant? Faithful and true is that old proverb, there are none so blind as those who will not see. We see, for another thing, in these verses, the overruling hand of God over all his enemies. We find that the unbelieving Jews sought to take our Lord, but no man laid hands on him, because his hour was not yet come. They had the will to hurt him, but by an invisible restraint from above they had not the power. There is a mine of deep truth in the words before us which deserves close attention. They show us plainly that all our Lord's sufferings were undergone voluntarily and of his own free will. He did not go to the cross because he could not help it. He did not die because he could not prevent his death. Neither Jew nor Gentile, Pharisee nor Sadducee, Annas nor Caiaphas, Herod nor Pontius Pilate could have injured our Lord, except power had been given them from above. All that they did was done under control and by permission. The crucifixion was part of the eternal counsels of the Trinity. The passion of our Lord could not begin until the very hour which God had appointed. This is a great mystery, but it is a truth. The servants of Christ in every age should treasure up the doctrines before us and remember it in time of need. It is full of sweet, pleasant, and unspeakable comfort to godly persons. Let such never forget that they live in a world where God overrules all times and events, and where nothing can happen but by God's permission. The very hairs of their head are all numbered. Sorrow and sickness, and poverty and persecution, can never touch them unless God sees fit. They may boldly say to every cross, Thou couldst have no power against me except it were given thee from above. Then let them work on confidently. They are immortal till their work is done. Let them suffer patiently, if needs be that they suffer. Their times are in God's hand. Psalm 31, verse 15. That hand guides and governs all things here below, and makes no mistakes. We see, lastly, in these verses, the miserable end to which unbelievers may one day come. We find our Lord saying to his enemies, Ye shall seek me, and shall not find me, and where I am, thither ye cannot come. We can hardly doubt that these words were meant to have a prophetical sense. Whether our Lord had in view individual cases of unbelief among his hearers, or whether he looked forward to the natural remorse which many would feel too late in the final siege of Jerusalem, are points which we cannot perhaps decide. But that many Jews did remember Christ's sayings, long after he had ascended into heaven, and did in a way seek him and wish for him when it was too late, we may be very sure. It is far too much forgotten that there is such a thing as finding out truth too late. There may be convictions of sin, discoveries of our own folly, desires after peace, anxieties about heaven, fears of hell, but all too late. The teaching of Scripture on this point is clear and express. It is written in Proverbs, then shall they call upon me, but I will not answer. Then shall they seek me early, but they shall not find me. Proverbs chapter 2, verse 28. It is written of the foolish virgins in the parable that when they found the door shut, they knocked in vain, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. Matthew chapter 35, verse 11. 
Awful as it may seem, it is possible, by continually resisting light and warnings, to sin away our own souls. It sounds terrible, but it is true. Let us take heed to ourselves, lest we sin after the example of the unbelieving Jews, and never seek the Lord Jesus as a Savior till it is too late. The door of mercy is still open. The throne of grace is still waiting for us. Let us give diligence to make sure our interest in Christ, while it is called today. Better never to have been born than to hear the Son of God say at last, Whither I am, thither ye cannot come. Notes, John chapter 7, verses 25 to 36. Verse 25. Then said some of Jerusalem, etc., it is likely that these speakers were some of the lower orders who lived at Jerusalem, and knew what the rulers wanted to do to our Lord. They can hardly be the same as the people at verse 20. They, being probably strangers to the plans of the priests and Pharisees, said, Who goeth about to kill thee? These, on the other hand, say, Is not this he whom they seek to kill? Titman remarks that the argument of the preceding verses appears to have had great weight in the mind of our Lord's hearers. Verse 26. But lo, he speaketh boldly, and they say nothing, etc. There appears to have been a restraining power put on our Lord's enemies at this juncture. See verse 30. It certainly seems to have struck the people before us as a remarkable thing that our Lord should speak out so boldly, openly, and publicly, and yet no effort be made by the rulers to apprehend him and stop his teaching. No wonder that they asked the question which immediately follows. Have our rulers changed their mind? Are they convinced at last? Have they really found out that this is truly the Messiah, the Christ of God? The Greek words would have been more literally rendered, Have the rulers truly learned that this man is truly the Christ? Verse 27. Howbeit we know this man whence he is. This means that they knew that our Lord was from Nazareth of Galilee. This, we must remember, was the universal belief of all the Jews. When our Lord rode into Jerusalem, just before his crucifixion, the multitude said, This is Jesus, the prophet of Nazareth of Galilee, Matthew chapter 21, verse 11. When an inscription was put over his head on the cross, in the letters of the three languages it was, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews, John chapter 19, verse 19. See also Matthew chapter 13, verse 55. Mark chapter 6, verse 3, Luke chapter 4, verse 22. Yet we know all this time that the Jews were mistaken, and that our Lord was in reality born at Bethlehem, according to prophecy, Micah chapter 5, verse 2. We can hardly doubt that the Jews might have found this out if they had taken the pains to inquire narrowly into the early history of our Lord's life. In a nation so strict about pedigrees and birthplaces, such a thing could not be hid. But it seems as if they would not take the pains to inquire and satisfy themselves with the common story of his origin, as it gave them an additional excuse for not receiving him as the Messiah. The entire ignorance which appears to have prevailed among the Jews about all the circumstances of our Lord's miraculous conception and his birth at Bethlehem is certainly rather remarkable. Yet it should be remembered that thirty years had passed away between our Lord's birth and his public ministry that his mother and Joseph were evidently in a very humble position and might easily be overlooked, as well as all that happened to them, and that living quietly at Nazareth, 
their journey to Bethlehem at the time of the taxing would soon be forgotten by others. After all, we must not forget that it is part of God's dealings with man not to force conviction and belief on anyone. The obscurity purposefully left over our Lord's birthplace was a part of the moral probation of the Jewish nation. If, in their pride and indolence and self-righteousness, they would not receive the abundant evidence which our Lord gave of his Messiahship, it could not be expected that God would make unbelief impossible by placing his birth of a virgin at Bethlehem beyond the reach of doubt. In this, as in everything else, if the Jews had honestly desired to find out the truth, they might have found it. When Christ cometh, no man knoweth, etc. It is rather difficult to see what the Jews meant by these words. Most writers think that they refer to the mysterious language of Isaiah about Messiah. Who shall declare his generation? Isaiah chapter 53, verse 8. Or to Micah's words, Whose going forth have been from of old, from everlasting? Micah chapter 5, verse 2. And that they had in view the divine and heavenly origin of Messiah, which all Jews allowed would be a mystery. Yet it is hard to understand why they did not say, When Christ cometh, he shall be born in Bethlehem, and why they should be supposed to speak of our Lord's earthly origin in the beginning of the verse, and of Messiah's divine origin in the end. There seems no explanation, except to suppose that these speakers were singularly ignorant Jews, who did not know that Messiah was to be born at Bethlehem, and only knew that his birth was to be a mysterious thing. This is a possible view, if not a very probable one. The argument of the speakers before us would then be as follows. When Messiah comes, he is to come suddenly, as Malachi foretold, saying, The Lord shall suddenly come to his temple, Malachi chapter 3, verse 1, unexpectedly, mysteriously, and taking people by surprise. This man, therefore, who is sitting in the temple among us, cannot be the Messiah, because we know that he came from Nazareth in Galilee and has been living there for more than thirty years. The prophecy about Messiah being born at Bethlehem they conveniently dropped out of sight, and in fact never dreamed that it was fulfilled by our Lord. The only prophecy they chose to look at was the one in Malachi, Malachi chapter 3, verse 1. And as the Lord did not appear to fulfill that, they concluded that he could not be the Christ. In religious matters, people are easily satisfied with very imperfect and superficial reasoning, when they want to be satisfied and to be spared further trouble. Men never want reasons to confirm their will. This seems to have been the case with the Jews. Rupertus mentions a common tradition of the Jews, that when Christ came, he would come at midnight, as the angel came at midnight when the firstborn were destroyed in Egypt, and he thinks it may have been in their minds here. Hutcheson observes that, not comparing of Scripture with Scripture, but taking any single sentence that seems to plead for that we would be at, is a very great nursery and cause of error, such as the Jews reasoning here. They catch at one thing, speaking of Messiah's divinity, and take no notice of other places. Besser quotes a saying of Luther's, The Jews are poor scholars. They have caught the sound of the prophet's clock, Micah chapter 5 verse 2, but they have not noted the stroke aright. He who does not hear well imagines well. They heard that Christ was so to come, that none should know whence he came. But they understood not right, that coming from God he was to be born of a virgin, and come secretly into the world. Verse 28. Then cried Jesus, Temple, taught. This is a remarkable expression. 
we find our Lord departing from his usual practice when we read that he cried or raised his voice to a high pitch. Generally speaking, the words in St. Matthew apply strictly, quoted from Isaiah chapter 47, verse 1, He shall not strive nor cry, neither shall any man hear his voice in the street. Matthew chapter 12, verse 19. Yet we see there were occasions when he did see it right to cry aloud and lift up his voice, and this is one. The perverse ignorance of the Jews, their persistence in blindness to all evidence, and the great opportunity afforded by the crowds around him in the temple courts were probably reasons why he cried. The Lord is only said to have cried or lifted up his voice in four other passages in the Gospels, viz. Matthew chapter 27, verse 50, Mark chapter 15, verse 39, John chapter 7, verse 37, and chapter 12, verse 44. The Greek for cried in Matthew chapter 27, verse 46, is even a stronger word than that before us. Yet both knew me and whence I am. This is an undeniably difficult expression, partly because it is hard to reconcile with John chapter 8, verse 14, and partly because it is not clear how the Jews could be said to know our Lord and whence he was. The explanations suggested are various. 1. Some, such as Grotius, Lamp, Doddridge, Bloomfield, Titman, and A. Clark, would have the sentence read as a question. Do you both know me, and do ye know whence I am? Are ye quite sure that you are correct in saying this? In this view, it would be rather like the mode of expression used by our Lord in John chapter 16, verse 31. Do you now believe? Where the interrogative forms the beginning of the sentence. 2. Some, as Calvin, Echolampadius, Beza, Flacius, Gauter, Rollock, Toletus, Glacius, Olshausen, Thorlock, Steer, and Webster, think that the sentence is spoken ironically. Truly you do know me and whence I am, and poor, miserable knowledge it is, worth nothing at all. Bengal and others object to this view, that our Lord never spoke ironically. Yet it would be hard to show that there is no irony in John chapter 10, verse 32, if not in Matthew chapter 26, verse 45, and Mark chapter 7, verse 9. 3. Some think, as Chrysostom, Cosius, Jansenius, Diodati, Bengal, Henry, Burkett, Hengstenberg, Alford, Wordsworth, and Burgon, that the sentence is a simple affirmation. It is true that you know me and whence I am. I grant that in a certain sense you are right. You know where I have been brought up, and who my relatives according to the flesh are, and yet in reality you know very little of me. Of my divine nature and my unity with my Father, you know nothing at all. On the whole, I prefer this last view to either of the other two. And I am not come of myself, etc. This sentence and the rest of the verse are evidently elliptical and must be paraphrased to give a full idea of the sense. And yet you do not really and thoroughly know me, for I am not come of myself, independent of God the Father, and without commission, but sent by the Father into the world, and he that sent me has proved himself true to his promises by sending me, and is indeed a real true person, and the true and faithful God of Israel, whom ye, with all your profession, do not know. Here, as elsewhere, our Lord's expression, not come of myself, points directly to that intimate union between himself and God the Father, which is so constantly referred to in the Gospel of John. Here, too, as elsewhere, our Lord charges on the unbelieving Jews ignorance of the God whom they profess to serve, and for whose honor they profess to be jealous. 
With all their boasted zeal for true religion and the true God, they did not really know God. The word true here is of doubtful interpretation. It means truthful, according to Cyril, Chrysostom, Theophylact, Lamp, Tholuck. But it is not clear that this is so. Alfred maintains that it must mean really existent. Trench takes the same view in his New Testament synonyms. Verse 29. But I know him, etc. The knowledge of which our Lord here speaks is that peculiar and intimate knowledge which is necessarily implied in the unity of the three persons of the Trinity in the Godhead. There is a high and deep sense of which the Son knows the Father, and the Father knows the Son, which we cannot pretend to explain, because it is far above our capacities. John chapter 10, verse 15. The Jews knew nothing rightly of God the Father. Jesus, on the contrary, could say, I know him, as no one else could. Neither knoweth any man the Father, save the Son, and he to whomsoever the Son will reveal him. Matthew chapter 11, verse 27. The expression, I am from him, must not be confined and cramped down to mean only that our Lord had come like any prophet of old, with a message and commission from God. It declares the relationship between God the Father and God the Son. I am from him by eternal generations, always one with him, always equal with him, but always a distant person, always the only begotten Son, always from him. The expression, he hath sent me, is, like the preceding one, something far more than the mere assertion of a prophet's commission. It is a declaration that he was the sent one, the Messiah, the prophet greater than Moses, whom the Father had always promised to send. I am the seed of the woman sent to bruise the serpent's head. I am he whom the Father covenanted and engaged to send for the redemption of a lost world. I am he whom the Father hath sent to be the Savior of lost man. I proclaim myself the sent one, the Christ of God. Bishop Hall paraphrases the two verses thus, Ye mutter secretly that ye know me, and the place of my birth and parentage, but ye are utterly mistaken, for I have a Father in heaven whom ye know not. I came not of myself, but my Father is he that sent me, who is the God of truth, of whom ye, after all your pretenses of knowledge, are utterly ignorant. But I do perfectly know him, as I have good reason, for both I am from him by eternal generations, and am by him sent into the world to do the great work of redemption. Verse 30. Then they sought to take him. This last declaration seems to have raised the anger of the Jerusalem multitude, who were listening to our Lord. With the characteristic keenness of all Jews, they at once detected in our Lord's language a claim to be received as the Messiah. Just as on a former occasion, they saw, in his calling God his Father, that he made himself equal with God, John chapter 5, verse 18. So here, in his sayings, I am from him, he hath sent me, they saw an assertion of his right to be received as Messiah. But no man, our not yet come. This restraint on our Lord's enemies can only be accounted for by direct divine interposition. It is like John chapter 8 verse 20 and chapter 18 verse 6. It is clear that they could do nothing against him except by God's permission, and when God, in his wisdom, was pleased to let it be done. Our Lord did not fall into his enemies' hands, through inability to escape, but because the hour had come, when he voluntarily undertook to die as a substitute. The doctrine before us, let us note, is full of comfort to God's people. Nothing can hurt them except and until God permits. 
we are all immortal till our work is done. To realize that nothing happens in this world except by the eternal counsels of our Father and according to his eternal plans is one grand secret of living a calm, peaceful, and contented life. Besser quotes a saying of Luther's, God has appointed a nice, easy hour for everything, and that hour has the whole world for its enemy. It must attack it. The devil shoots and throws at the poor clock-hand, but in vain, for all depends on the hour. Till the hour comes, and the hand has run its course, the devil and the world shall accomplish nothing. Verse 31. Many of the people. This means the common people, the lower orders, in contradistinction to the Pharisees and chief priests. Believed on him. There seems no reason to think that this was not a true faith, so far as it went, but it would not be safe to perhaps conclude that it was more than a general belief that our Lord must be the Messiah, the Christ, and that he deserved to be received as such. When Christ cometh, more miracles done. This language must clearly have been used by people who were familiar with many of our Lord's miracles wrought in Galilee and knew a good deal about his ministry. So few miracles probably had been wrought as yet in and round Jerusalem that the language would hardly be used by Jerusalem people. The word more probably means not only more in number but greater in character. The question raised by this people was a fair and reasonable one. What greater evidence could anyone give that he is the Christ than this man has given? He could not work greater miracles, even if he worked more numerous ones. What, then, are we waiting for? Why should we not acknowledge this man as the Christ? Verse 32. The Pharisees heard that the people murmured him. This would be more literally translated, the Pharisees heard the people murmuring. They actually heard with their own ears the common people as they walked about the temple courts and gathered in the streets of Jerusalem at the crowded time of the feast, keeping up their under-conversation about our Lord. Here, as at the twelfth verse, the word we render murmuring does not necessarily imply any finding fault, but only a dissatisfied and restless state of mind, which found vent in much conversation and whispering among the people. And the Pharisees sent officers to take him. It would seem that the talk and stir of men's minds about our Lord so alarmed and irritated the rulers of the Jews that they resolved, even now, in the midst of the feast, to arrest him, and so stop his preaching. What day of the feast this was, and what interval elapsed between this verse and the thirty-seventh, where we are told of the last day of the feast, we are not told. It seems probable that the officers sought an opportunity for taking our Lord, but could find none, partly because of the crowds that surrounded him, and partly because of a divine restraint laid upon them and that this was the state of things for three days at least. Full well did these Pharisees justify our Lord's character of them in another place. Ye neither go in yourselves into the kingdom, neither suffer ye them that are entering to go in. Matthew chapter 23, verse 13. Verse 33. Then Jesus said unto them, The officers of the Pharisees and their supporters seem clearly to be the persons whom our Lord here addresses, not only were they, through divine restraint, unable to lay hands on him, but they were obliged to stand by and listen to him. They dared not seize him for fear of the people, and yet dared not go away to report their inability to carry out their orders. Yet a little while, etc. There is probably an undertone of sadness and tenderness about this and the following sentences. It is as though our Lord said, Ye have come to lay hands on me, and ye might well bear with me. 
I am only a little time longer with you, and then when my time has come for leaving the world, I shall go back to my father who sent me. Or else it must mean, ye are sent to lay hands on me, but it is useless at present. Ye cannot do it, because my hour is not yet come. I have yet a little longer time to minister on earth, and then, and not till then, I will go to him that sent me. Alfred takes this view. The Jews, of course, could not understand whom our Lord meant by him that sent me, and this saying must necessarily have seemed dark and mysterious to them. Verse 34. Ye shall seek me, shall not find me. These words seem addressed both to the officers and to those who sent them. To the whole body, in fact, of our Lord's unbelieving enemies. A day will come too late when you will anxiously seek me and bitterly lament your rejection of me, but too late. The day of your visitation will be past and gone, and you will not find me. There is a great Bible truth taught here, as elsewhere, which is far too much overlooked by many. I mean the possibility of men seeking salvation when it is too late, and crying for pardon and heaven when the door is shut forever. Men may find out their folly and be filled with remorse for their sins, and yet feel that they cannot repent. No doubt true repentance is never too late, but late repentance is seldom true. Pharaoh, King Saul, and Judas Iscariot could all say, I have sinned. Hell itself is truth known too late. God is unspeakably merciful, no doubt, but there is a limit even to God's mercy. He can be angry and may be provoked to leave men alone. People should often study Proverbs chapter 1, verses 24 to 31, Job chapter 27, verse 9, Isaiah chapter 1, verse 15, Jeremiah chapter 11, verse 11, chapter 14, verse 12, Ezekiel chapter 8, verse 18, Hosea chapter 5, verse 16, Micah chapter 3, verse 4, Zechariah chapter 7, verse 13, Matthew chapter 25, verses 11 and 12. These words very possibly received a most awful fulfillment during the siege of Jerusalem, forty years after they were spoken. So think Chrysostom, Theophylact, and Euthymius. But they were probably found true by many of our Lord's hearers long before that time. Their eyes were opened to see their folly and sin after our Lord had left the world. Bergon remarks that to this very day the Jews are in a sense seeking the Messiah, and yet not finding him. Where I am, thither ye cannot come. The place our Lord speaks of here is evidently heaven. Some have thought, as Bengal, that the words, where I am, should be translated, where I go, but it is neither a natural nor usual sense to put on the words, nor is it necessary. There was a sense in which the Son of God could say with perfect truth, where I am, thither ye cannot come. As God, he never ceased to be in heaven, even when he was fulfilling his ministry on earth during his incarnation. As God, he could truly say, where I am and not merely where I was or where I shall be. It is like John chapter 3, verse 13, where our Lord, speaking to Nicodemus, calls himself the Son of Man, which is in heaven. The expression is one of many texts proving our Lord's divinity. No mere man speaking on earth could speak of heaven as a place where I am. Augustine strongly maintains this view. Ye cannot come. This is one of those expressions which show the impossibility of unconverted and unbelieving men going to heaven. It is a place where they cannot come. Their own nature unfits them for it. They would not be happy if they were there. Without new hearts, without the Holy Ghost, without the blood of Christ, they could not enjoy heaven. The favorite notion of some modern theologians, that all mankind are finally to go to heaven, cannot possibly be reconciled with this expression. 
Men may please themselves with thinking it is kind and loving and liberal and large-hearted to teach and believe that all men and women of all sorts will finally be found in heaven. One word of our Lord Jesus Christ overturns the whole theory. Heaven is a place, he says, to the wicked, where ye cannot come. The word ye is emphatical, and in the Greek stands out in strong contrast to the I of the sentence. Verse 35, Then said the Jews themselves, the expression Jews here can hardly be confined to the Pharisees and rulers. It must mean at any rate those among them who heard our Lord say the words in the preceding verse. Whoever they were, they were probably not friendly to him. Whither will he go, not find him? This would be more literally rendered, Whither is this man about to go? They could put no meaning of a spiritual kind on our Lord's words. Will he go, dispersed, Gentiles, etc.? This would be more literally rendered, is he about to go to the dispersion among the Greeks, and to teach the Greeks? The Greek language and Greek literature and Greek philosophy had so thoroughly leavened Asia Minor and Syria and Palestine that the expression Greeks in the New Testament is often equivalent to Gentiles, and stands for any people who are not Jews. Thus Romans chapter 2 verse 9, chapter 10 verses 3 to 9, 1 Corinthians chapter 10 verse 32, and chapter 12 verse 13. Yet it is a singular fact that this is the only passage in the New Testament where the word Greek, standing alone and not in contradistinction to Jews, is rendered Gentile. The verse teaches two interesting things. One is the fact that the existence of a large number of Jews scattered all over the Gentile world was acknowledged as notorious in our Lord's time. The other is the impression that it proves to have prevailed among the Jews that a new teacher of religion might be expected to go to the Jews scattered among the Gentiles, and, beginning with them, proceed to teach the Gentiles. This is, in fact, precisely what the Apostle Paul and his companions afterwards did. They did go to the dispersed among the Gentiles and teach the Gentiles. The idea starting here of teaching the Gentiles was probably the suggestion of those who hated our Lord. How much the Jews detested the opening of the door of salvation to the Gentiles, we know from the Acts of the Apostles. Some, as Chrysostom, Theophylact, Hengstenberg, and many others, think that the words dispersed among the Gentiles mean the Gentiles themselves dispersed and scattered all over the world, and not the Jews. But our own version seems far more likely. There is an awkwardness in calling the Gentiles the dispersion, and it is an expression nowhere else used. James calls the Jews the twelve tribes scattered abroad. James chapter 1, verse 1. Verse 36. What manner of saying, etc. This question of the Jews is the language of people who saw that there was probably some deep meaning in our Lord's words, and yet were unable to make out what he meant. Hating our Lord bitterly, as many of them did, determined to kill him the first opportunity, vexed and annoyed at their own inability to answer him or to stop his influence with the people, they suspected everything that fell from his lips. Do not these words of his imply some mischief? Is there not some evil at the bottom of them? Do they not indicate that he is going to dishonor the law of Moses by pulling down the wall of partition between Jew and Gentile? End of section 3